Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to part two of the series that we're in right now called Habits. And the idea of the series that we kicked off with last week was that there's a way that these like little behavioral changes, small actions that we take today have a huge impact on our lives in the future, tomorrow. A huge impact on our lives, in our communities, maybe in your neighborhoods, the dorm or the house that you go home to. Small changes that lead to these huge impacts. And so now we're going to move into what some of these habits are that God designed to have this huge kind of impact in our lives and in our communities. And the first one that we're going to talk about today is the rhythm or the habit of simplicity. And so we're going to start off kind of getting us all on the same page here and say, listen, everybody in the rooms, we don't have to do like a show of hands today. Everybody in the room listening, watching online right now, you lead a ridiculously complicated life. And even if your life actually isn't that complicated, you'll find a way to overcomplicate it. That's just what we do all the time. It's almost like, like we can't help it. It's so easy. I, I do this myself. Like I find a way to complicate my rest and leisure time. Like just sitting around, I find a way to be like, you know what would be amazing? If I could sit around on a deck in my backyard. And so now I'm going to take my Saturdays, right? And I'm going to make this deck. And so I recruit my dad along with it. And it's like, hey, man, let's, let's build this thing out. It's going to be amazing. And we divide up the roles. And he takes the role of project foreman. And I get the role of, like, post hole digger. And I'm like, that sounds about right. But, you know, I'm digging these holes on a Saturday. It's a gorgeous day like today. You know, I'm like, okay, this is great. And I get done. I'm thinking, you know, if I just dug another hole, I could like extend this thing another like five feet down. You see where this is going? And so I'm like, I got time today. So I just go ahead and I dig three more. <laughs> I'm like, great, awesome. But it's not just the holes that day because then I need to get some more wood, the more lumber. Again, need to get boxes and boxes, more screws, more Saturdays dedicated to the thing. Now that happened a few years ago. So now it's like worn and it's a little weathered. So now I got to power wash the thing, stain and seal the thing. And I'm like going, this thing is taking all of my Saturdays away. For what? So that I could sit on it? I don't have any time to sit on it. I got to take care of it all the time. We have a remarkable ability to complicate our lives. And now listen, listen, this is going to hit some of you, right? Because even in the ways that you're trying to simplify your life, you find a way to complicate it. So you need to buy a shirt or buy a pair of pants or something, right? And so instead of like going to the store, the outlet mall, something and buying it and then just being done with it, it's like, hey, listen, I'll save the planet and I'll order online. I don't have to take my, uh, my, my SUV to the store. It's going to be amazing. And so like sitting down in the living room, phone, computer, whatever, and you're like going online, except you have to hit the minimum order quantity to get free shipping. And of course, you're going to get free shipping. And as long as you're perusing the internet, you might as well go to three, seven, eight, ten different stores online and like order and hit the minimum shipping for everything. You got boxes and boxes, delivery trucks stopping in. It's like your neighbors are thinking that you're running some kind of textile mill with all of the traffic coming in and out. And you're like, great, finally, I found the shirt, the perfect shirt that I wanted. Now I just need to drive around town for a week and a half with a thousand dollars of returns in my trunk. I'm preaching to somebody right now, right? You get it. And it's taking up all of your time. And I'm like, listen, I tried to simplify my life. And the way that I tried to simplify it somehow ended up making it infinitely more complicated. 
Parents, you get this. Parents, when you're making a meal for your kids and it's like, finally, you know, I had some time, had some foresight to put a lasagna in the oven or some kind of casserole because we're good Midwesterners, right? And we take the thing out and like, great, kids, family, this is what we're having to eat. And kid number one's like, I don't like it. It's green. I don't, I don't eat green things. Awesome. Kid number two's like, well, if he doesn't eat it, I'm not going to eat it. Kid three's like, I don't know, but apparently we're not having this. And so you're like... <laughs> Making more, making more meals, right? It's not a huge, just like peanut butter and jelly. It costs like nothing, right? The other kid, he wants like ham dipped in ranch because again, Midwest. It's like, fine, I don't care. Have lunch meat for dinner again. That, whatever, I'm out. But then years later, you're like, wait a second. This just became a habit. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like three kids, a meal a day from 12, from two to 12 year olds old. That's 10,000 extra meals. It's like life is so complicated. I don't have time or capacity for this. I was listening to this leadership podcast and it was kind of about like churches or like organizational leadership, but I found so much, I found it to be so helpful with like a personal individual life as well. But the, but the thrust of it was something like this. It was just that simplicity doesn't happen automatically by itself. Complexity happens automatically if left unattended. And the line from it was this. It was so good. It was so good. It was, simplicity must be chosen audaciously and with tenacity every single day. Because complexity is just what happens naturally. And so we're going to go into that this morning. And so we're going to hear about how we choose simplicity audaciously and with tenacity every single day. And we're going to go to the story that Jesus told that I think will give us the one question that's going to clarify so much of this. This one question that's going to give us a paradigm to look to to help us choose audaciously with tenacity, simplicity every single day. Let's go to the story from Luke chapter 12. There's Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. You can pull those out. We can we follow along uh, that way. Uh, phone friendly, so like the blue screen, that's a good sign you're using the Bible app. Also the words are on the screen behind me. Um, it starts off in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to camp out there all morning. Luke 12 verse 13 starts off this way, that someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is not a question. This is not a request. This is a demand. Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So almost certainly what's happening, we have to know this because it colors everything else that happens in the story, is that what's going on here is that this is probably the younger brother. There's at least two of them. And what would happen in those days is that when a patriarch, when a dad would unexpectedly pass away and that he didn't have an oral will, which would have been fine, or he didn't have a written will that what his estate should go to, what would happen is that automatically everything in the estate, all of his possessions would automatically go to the oldest son in the family. And then the oldest son in the family would be charged with taking care of the rest of the family, including the younger brother. And so probably what is the case here is that we've got a younger brother who is getting like nothing out of the estate, but hey, his older brother is supposed to take care of him and he doesn't like how his older brother is looking after him. And so he goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you do something about this? But the problem in the story is that it's, 
is that it assumes that this split has automatically has already happened and already taken place. It assumes that the brothers are no longer going to be reconciled and going to be together. The question is not, Jesus, I don't get along with my brother. Jesus, there's a problem in the family. There's a rift. Jesus, can you employ your ministry of reconciliation to bring this family together? Can you, can you offer up your miraculous healing power and restore the health of this family dynamic? He doesn't do that. Because the split has already happened. He's not interested in that. He's done with his brother over the stuff in the family. And I thought that story has been repeated time and time again. If we think that that's a story that happened just then, we are sorely mistaken. I'll tell you how I see it. And I've heard a variation of this a number of times. You got a couple in their mid-50s. And they're like at the top of their careers is earning potential. Life is good. In fact, the only problem, the only thing that they have going on is that their kids are getting older. The kids are getting older and they're starting to talk about moving away. And they're going, how is it that our kids, how is it that the families are going to like come back together again? So it's like, this is what we'll do. Well, we still got them now. We'll buy a property. We'll buy some land on a body of water. We'll build a cottage. Because again, that's what we do in the Midwest. We get cottages and then we get this cottage and then everybody is going to come. Everybody, the whole family, they're going to come and they're going to have a reason for getting together. And the thing is, I've seen it is most of the time, it's a good plan. Like, it works. The families come together. And as I've seen it again and time and time again, it's like, hey, they have a reason. And this home, this cottage is marked by, by, is marked by laughter and joy and warmth and hospitality. And it is a place of deep gratitude and joy for years. And then that couple isn't in their mid-50s anymore. They they go ahead and come to their mid-80s. And they're sort of unwinding life now. And they don't know what to do with the place. And again, it's like that dinner table conversation from when the kids were little. Kid number one is like, I know what we should do. We should sell it and we should, and we should just divide up the inheritance equally among all of us. And kid number two is like, but to sell that place would be like parting out, piecing out a part of our soul. We can't do that to mom and dad. We can't honor them or dishonor them that way. And kid number three is like, I want nothing to do with any of you whatsoever. And one and two are going, see, that's it. You're detaching yourself. You've got something. And what has supposed to bring them together, the irony is that it's driving them apart. And I just want to ask the question and let it linger. Is the stuff that you have standing in the way of the life that you want? There's a, um, there's a couple of bloggers that I want to introduce to you. Their names are Josh and Nicodemus. Josh tells his story. Um, he's the, the minimalist. It's also a Netflix special in case you're not the reading type, um, which is where I saw it. Uh, Josh grew up super poor in rural Ohio and he figured that because of that, all of the problems that he experienced as a kid and his family were the result of being poor. And so he vowed to do anything that he could to prevent that as an adult. And he did. He was extraordinarily successful. 
in a corporate career, climbing the ladder, everything, very, very comfortable, as they say. And then one day, Saturday came, and he's, um, his wife asked him to clean out the garage, and he needs to. It's full of pool equipment and beach toys and sports gear, just everything crowding in. All of the stuff that they're supposed to do as a family. The kid's like, hey, Dad, would you come play ball? Hey, Dad, would you play around? With hey, Dad, let's, let's play catch. And he had to keep telling his kid, no, no, not now, not now. I have to clean out the garage. Not now. This really needs to be done. And it like hits him. That the stuff that he has, the stuff that was intended to bring the whole family together, the stuff that he has is keeping him from the life he wants. And so like the question, the question that we're like lingering around here that Jesus I think is going to help us to ask is not a question about how to downsize more effectively about how to become minimalist and to do better with less. Because the problem with that, at least, at least in a spiritual concept, the problem with that for people who are trying to live and love more like Jesus, who are fascinated by him, is that Jesus led a minimal lifestyle, sure. But, but the problem is that downsizing and getting rid of just helps you be free from distraction and just helps you to see more clearly. But church, listen to me. If there's not anything that you're looking at, nothing helps you see nothing more clearly. I came across this guy, this story, who would say, um, I just noticed that like, you know, business functions, dinner parties, like whatever. And people would always, people always like, ask some derivative of a simple question, what do you do for a living? And they always get boring responses, right? Like, I, you know, I'm a, a high school Spanish teacher. I work at a construction uh, company in a warehouse, I'm a doctor, nurse, like whatever it is. It's just like standard stuff, right? And it's not real that, really that interesting. And so he thought, I'm gonna throw him for a loop. And so this guy like makes it his, uh, makes it his personal like thing at these to introduce first, what do you do for a living? And then they tell him without thinking, cause it's habit, right? It's just like, this is what it is. I, you know, I got four kids that stay home with them, right? Just rolls right off. He goes, okay, here, not just what do you do for a living followed quickly with what are you living for? That's the question. That's the question at the party that's met with, <clears throat> um, uh, I'm sorry, what? Well, you, you do this for a living, but, but it stands to reason that you presumably have a reason for what are you living for? And I think this is the question that's like in front of us all right now. There's this, this incredible power to simplify like everything. It's just seen through this lens. No, what is it? Because we're not just downsizing or minimizing or simplifying for simplicity's sake. That's circular. No, no, no. We're doing it all to see something, to choose something, to do something more clearly. What is that thing? What are you living for? Jesus turns on the man and he goes in verse 14, these are the things that stand in the way. He replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, not just the guy asking the question, but like all of the crowd listening in and also us too today. And he says to us, he goes, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of, and the word there is greed, but that is such a loaded term. And it's also like everybody knows like greed is bad, right? Whether you grew up in church or not, it's like, oh yeah, you know, we should probably avoid that one. No, no, no. I, well, one translator did with this one. He says, just because the word is overused a lot, he, he, he translated it instead of greed, he turned it into 
Be on your guard, watch out against all kinds of, and he called them insatiable appetites, which is so much of a better description about what Jesus wants us to be on our guard about. Because he goes like, no, no, I'm not a greedy person. I don't think you're a greedy person. We never really meet greedy persons. We just read about them on the internet. But people with appetites, I know them, right? And we all have this appetite. But the problem that Jesus is instructing is that now that you have an appetite, God gave that thing to you. It keeps you alive in a very physical, like I get hungry and so I eat something. It's a good thing. We're not Buddhists. We're not against that. It's a good thing to have desires. The problem though with appetites is that you are never fully and finally satisfied with that appetite. And so it's just like we fill it and fill it again and again and again. You know this because like me, you have probably lived through several Thanksgivings, right? Where I go and I sit down and I have turkey and mashed potatoes and pie and the very aptly named stuffing (laughs) and then more. And I, I get it done and I'm so full and I'm like, listen, I say to my wife, I don't think I'm ever going to be hungry again. And she goes, I'm going to remember that. (laughs) Because four hours later, my nose is in the refrigerator. And she's going, I thought you were never going to be hungry again. I was like, well, that was lunch. This is dinner time. I make a sandwich out of the turkey or something left over, right? Because this, this is the way the appetites work. You're never, you're never fully and finally satisfied. It's just that's not how it works. And the thing is, though, about appetites is that hunger is one of them. And we have a lot of different kinds of appetites. We've got an appetite for sex. We've got an appetite for reputation management. We have an appetite for for recognition. We have uh, an appetite for fame, for notoriety. We've got an appetite for so many things. And listen, they are never, your appetite is never fully And finally, satisfied. You can spend your life and just keep shoving more and more in again and again and again. And the picture that it paints is like this treadmill that you're running on and that you're never really getting ahead. That you think that just this next step or this next rung is like what's gonna finally satiate me and finally I won't. And she says, just listen, watch out because whatever is going on there. It will exhaust you in the end and it will just break you down and wear you out. And Jesus puts like an exclamation point on this in the very next line. He goes, hey, this is worth maybe writing down. He goes, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus is like seeing this guy on this like treadmill after ruining his family and now it's taking his faith and God himself is standing right in front of him. He can't, he can't see it because of this inheritance deal that he's like trying to manage and trying to, to claw back more of. And Jesus is going, do you not realize it? Do you not realize that this thing is just tearing you apart? Do you not realize that it's robbing you of joy, robbing you of life? He's looking at this treadmill thing and going like, I don't know why I even need to say it, but that's not life. Like, life is not, is not found there. Exhaustion is found there. Depression is found there. Sadness, ruined relationships, broken families are all found on that treadmill. But life? No, life isn't found there. Let me, t- let me tell you a story. And Jesus continues in verse 16. He told them this parable. A parable is a made-up story that Jesus made up in order to drive home and leverage a truth. 
And this is the story, that the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And so he does what every normal person does. When you have an abundance of surplus or something, you keep it, spend it, flaunt it, store it, insure it, potentially leverage it to buy more it. So in verse 18, that's more or less what he does. Then he said, this is what I'll do. Now, before we hear what he does, who's he talking to? There's nobody else in the story but him. He said to himself, this is what I'll do. Now, it's not so much, it's a bit lost on us today, but Ken Bailey is a, uh, a, a, a guy who studies like Middle Eastern culture uh, 2,000 years ago and also here today. And he goes, this is a culture that is remarkably communal. They don't make any decisions on their own, especially one that has to do with like construction and farm management. You get 20, 30 people in the village around. You get your family around. You get your friends around. This guy planning out and talking to himself is talking to himself because he's all by himself. There is no one else. And the guy who just recently lost a relationship with his brother over inheritance is like, please continue. I'm listening. And we're all listening in too. And he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. And he quotes Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. He said, take life easy, eat, drink, and be married. You can almost hear in the words, like he's all by himself and he's only thinking of himself. You can almost feel, can't you? Like how the whole thing is like turning up in on himself. And it's like, that's all there is. And so the entire existence, the point of answering that question, what do you do for a living? I'm a farmer and I'm good at it. And he goes, yes, but what are you living for? And he's going, eating, drinking, myself. That's all. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't tell him to quit being selfish. He just sort of explains what's going to happen next. Because if you live for yourself, you kind of end with yourself. And Jesus points out in the next line in verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And I think as Jesus finishes that, he pauses before this next line. He pauses right there because what Jesus wants to subtly instill on everybody listening, us included, is that we all have a this very night. Everybody in, gathered around him then and us today, we know that our this night is coming. It's only a matter of time. The mortality rate, even for Jesus, the Son of God, hovered around 100%. Everybody has a this very night. Foolish thing to make it just about you when you know there's an expiration coming. And Jesus steps out of the storytelling now and he makes a point by saying, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward 
God. The problem with living with you is that it ends when you end. And Jesus says, you know, there's another way though. <laughs> there's, a, there's a way to keep on going, to keep it going. It goes like this. Um, David Brooks is a commentator for uh, the New York Times. And he wrote a book uh, a while ago called The Road to Character. Where in the book, he essentially lays out a couple of different ways to, to live your life. And he goes, there's, there's two main ways of viewing your life and what was inside of it. And he goes, there are resume virtues. These are the successes that you've had, the awards that you've won, the accomplishments that you have achieved. Resume virtues. Things that you would put down on paper to a job you're hoping to get. There's also such a thing as called eulogy virtues. These are the ways in which you demonstrated courage, faithfulness, even when things were remarkably difficult. The capacity that you have to sacrificially love someone else. Eulogy virtues. And the cruel irony, as he points it out, and for us to just consider this morning, is that we live, we tend to live building our resume virtues. But on the day after this very night, I don't have to tell you what people will remember or not. After all, they're called eulogy virtues. So I just want to come back to that question that I asked originally on the outset. Not what do you do for a living? What are you living for? Is it you? Or is there something else? Because the problem with yours and mine with our appetites is not, is not that our appetites are too big. And we can never quite get there. It's just out of reach in terms of the problem. The problem is it's not big enough. We think that something so small will satiate it. For an unsatiable, infinite appetite, you need an infinite God to fill it. Something that, someone that will never, ever leave you. Needing more from him than what he can offer. This is a story um, that... It's like, it's 19 years old. It takes place in Memphis, Tennessee. When this guy stood up to speak at a conference, the Passion Conference, so kind of young adults gathered in a room, and he was not the, uh, the top tier of the program. He was a C-lister, right? This is not the like evening of the last session kind of thing. This is like, no, no, during the day, it's outside. This guy steps up to the podium and people are remembering this and they're like, who's this guy? Like, how did he get invited to be a speaker? And he's like, is this old guy already 19 years ago, right? And his gray hair is like flapping in the wind. He's got these wire rim glasses. He's got pleats on his pants and his, and his like plaid shirt is tucked in. It paints a picture. I imagine he's got like those grass stained white new balance is going on. That's unconfirmed, but it's like it paints a picture. This guy steps up. This guy steps up to the podium 
And he starts talking. Who's this guy? It turns out his name is John Piper now. He's pretty well known. But, but he shares this story uh, that people tended to remember. And I wanted to share it with you because it's so important, this question. Um, what are you living for? He said, three weeks ago at my church in Minneapolis, three weeks ago we got news that these two women in my church were on a, a medical missions trip. I see these two women... One was a nurse, one was a doctor. They were both pushing 80, retired. But they had dedicated their lives to making Jesus known in places of the world where they had no way of knowing. And so they would go to village to village around the world, whoever could, on their own dime with their own expertise in, uh, in the field of medicine, just sharing the love of Jesus and helping people out, the poorest of the poor. Three weeks ago, our church got news that these two women were together on one of these trips in Central Africa, Cameroon, when the brakes went on on their bus. And their bus that they were traveling on careened off a hill, and they immediately died on impact. Gone. Just like that. And he asked everybody listening, he goes, was this a tragedy he said, no. They knew with remarkable clarity what their life was about, what they were living for. He goes, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, what a tragedy is. And he picks out a sheet of paper. It's a, it's a sheet that he ripped out of a Reader's Digest magazine. Many of you don't know what that is. It's found in a dentist's office. He rips it out, sanctified theft of a pastor, rips this thing out, puts it in his pocket, pulls it out, and he says, I want to share with, a, with you what a tragedy looks like. A tragedy looks like Bob and Penny retired from their jobs in the Northeast and moved to Southern Florida. At 51 and 59, they like to, they like to travel on their yacht down the canals. They like to practice golf and collect seashells. This is a tragedy. The tragedy is that their life is about nothing more than just this, and it ends when they end. This is a tragedy, not the women who died in Cameroon off a cliff. This is the tragedy that they're wasting their life a shell at a time. The tragedy is that they are going to go to their God in heaven, the creator of the universe, and he's going to ask them, and he's going to ask all of us, what did you do with the minutes on that world that I gave you? And they're going to tell them about their boat, and they're going to tell God about their backswing, and they're going to tell God about the amazing seashell collection that they have. This is the tragedy. And so I want to ask like one more time, what are you living for? Because I think that when you start to pattern your life and to make every decision that you can through that lens of what or who am I living for, I think some of the complexity and some of the distractions tend to fade away. And this calm, this deep kind of peace presses in to say, no matter what, I got you. What are you living for? Some of you have never 
thought about that question before. Or you have not thought about it in a very long time. What are you living for? If you're ready at a place this morning, we're going to close in a time of prayer. And I'm going to lead you in prayer. And if you just found yourself like, like patterning these words after mine and say, yes, yes, that's what I want to live for. That's what I want my life to be about. I don't want my life to end with just me. I'm going to ask that you head to the prayer table in the back. We've got a team we would love to pray with you this morning to help you answer that question. What are you living for? Prayer table, first one. The second thing, if you're a 20-something, 22, 23 to 29, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm living for. I'm just kind of going through the motions. ReframeGR.com. You see the t-shirts all around. Ask one of them. This is what this is all about. What are you living for? And the last one, Last one is a special invitation. We have a baptism weekend coming up here in mid-October. We would love to celebrate with you. We already have a number of people who have already signed up and ready to declare to show the world that they are with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Say, this is what I am living for. You can go to encounterchurch.org slash baptism. Let's start this conversation because you need to know This very night will happen. You need to know that there's a way to live your life that actually goes beyond, that actually goes well beyond the end of just you and me. Church, one more time. What are you living for? Let's stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God, I want to pray specifically right now for somebody who's who's being convicted with that question because maybe they've been living for the wrong thing. Maybe they've been living for a person who's not you. Maybe they've been experiencing this insatiable appetite and just trying to feed it more and more and more all the time, and it's never enough. It's never ultimately satisfying. God, I ask that you speak to that person right now. I ask that you show them that there's a way to live that's about more than just them. It's a way to live with eternity in mind. Jesus, help us to put our hope into you, the one who's infinitely greater than us and will, and will never leave us with just needing more. God, meet us where we are here this morning. In your name we pray, amen.